And at that point, we're then engaging with procurement and immediately we're into a, can we discount? Your rate card seems <laughs> too high and we need an answer to... Uh, yeah, according to down. my PSL and my other suppliers, you're way above the rate card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My name's Mike Lander and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad and the ugly in partnership with The Drum where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. John, thanks ever so much for joining us on the Marketing Negotiations podcast with The Drum. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. And John, so the audience knows, how long have we known each other? Oh, over 20 years, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Fair, Fair time. It is 20 years, isn't it? And we've just kept, you know, we started as business contacts and then we became friends and uh, we've just kept in contact ever since. So great to have you on the podcast uh, for the audience. John's not just here because he's a mate. John's got amazing, (laughs) amazing commercial background, which we'll hear about now. So John, what's your kind of background, kind of commercial deals you've done, who you work for now? Yeah, so I suppose if you go all the way back to start of career, was in three floors underground under the Bank of England uh, in a technical <laughs> role and uh, escaped that. That was the late 80s, um, big bang. I came out of that 89, 90-ish and immediately went into commercial roles. So I've been selling, business development, marketing, product roles, mostly technology or data related, but very quickly into the web world of the dot-com boom and uh, bust era um, and was really bringing agile and agile software development practices to banks long before they understood you know 20 plus years ago we brought Ken Schreiber over yeah and we met what was the um what was the company that was the hosting company back in the day so uh, attender was the hosting Tender. company no, now Ensono, I think. And um, Conchango were the, the web agency who were really engineering centric. And that's where I found my natural home, which was consulting and custom software development, building, you know, these new innovative pioneering web style projects, complex websites. And that's the place I've stayed the whole way through my career. Brilliant. So what do you do now? Just what's your role now? I'm with a company called Red Badger. Red Badger is founded 12 years ago by three ex-Conchango employees. So we've all been in the custom, complex, blue-chip digital space for you know many, many moons. And something unusual. Um, so I've been reflecting this and what the nature of the conversation. I thought something you may not know is that I'm a qualified primary school teacher. Wow. So my de- my degree is in is a Bachelor of Education with early years in science. As uh, I know ne- didn't know that. Never taught, never practiced, um, did 31 weeks in classrooms back in the day. Um, but that's you know, the interest in education is uh, a theme that's uh, run a thread through my career as well. And it hasn't and it still is now. I mean, you're a trustee for a school, aren't you? Trustee, co-founder of a secondary school, a state-funded secondary school, and now that's grown into uh, a mid-sized multi-academy trust with six schools and research school. Amazing. Well done, John. Very good. So let's kind of kick off with the conversation because I'm respectful of your time, obviously. We've got kind of four or five things that we can touch on, but one I'd like to start with around kind of digital product development inside big enterprise organization. You know, it's evolved a lot from what was an IT budget 
to now being multi-stakeholder, marketing, IT, heads of business, procurement. What does that mean when you're negotiating deals? So I think that's right, this convergence of digital really sitting between marketing and engineering. So we go back a good few years and most digital, as people begin to bolt it onto the side of their business, the marketing department held digital budgets and used it for digital marketing and started building websites. And those websites became increasingly functional and started delivering the services and the product itself. So digital product emerges. And at that level of scale and complexity, it becomes much more an engineering function. So you get this convergence, and we still see that today in that many of our core sponsorship comes from the business or a product-type sponsor rather than a marketing sponsor. Yet marketing are the huge beneficiary, and often you want to bake marketing into the quality of your product. So there's an element of crossover where marketing may own the business goals, but the business owns some other kind of operational metrics that they're trying to drive. And as we both know, engineering, you know, banking, if you're in the banking world, all of a sudden you've got this rightly really complex back end, lots of security concerns and questions from engineering with marketing wanting to build out the business and build new propositions and change the UX. It must be yeah. complex. Hugely complex. And that's a... You, you've, Hit on something that's uh, very familiar is that the speed of release, so the cycles of innovation and the ability to iterate a product so that it gets better and better and better um, really quickly. The digital native businesses, so the challenger banks, the early to, you know, the Ubers, the Airbnbs that disrupted whole industries are all able to do that incredibly quickly. You know, they're changing their core product many times a day or even an hour, whereas a bank may have change windows that can be three or six months. So they can't change the core systems. So you have to find ways of building products and services in a way where the technology can evolve quickly in the user experience and the front end, but you're not interrupting the regulatory framework and the scale of the, the back-end processes. And that's the emerging kind of area of digital product in enterprise. And it's hugely complex with these multiple stakeholders. So how do you negotiate those contracts, John? Carefully, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's the key. So there's a there's definitely an approach that is depends where you're sponsored from. So in most of the work that I've done, we have been a pioneering type supplier. So we're we're not. It's very hard to categorise us other than a niche boutique custom software developer. And in that world or that category of supplier, we generally have a sponsor who has a remit to get something done and can broadly unlock a budget to achieve that. So it's almost always CapEx. What tends to happen is the negotiations will start commercially with that core sponsor. And at some point, that sponsor then brings all the other stakeholders to align them such that we can get to contracts. And that sponsor, is that sponsor kind of C-suite, one below C-suite? Where are they? It depends on the scale of organization. So for us, I think a kind of billion revenue, it would be C-suite or minus one, C minus one. In a, you know, dozens of billions, hundreds of billions of revenue, so a huge 
truly global enterprise, we could be two or three levels down. We could be ahead of a major product line, function, region, those kind of areas. And it's very difficult to predict exactly where they sit in terms of title. So they could be in a customer group. They can occasionally be in marketing, but more commonly, they're in a business line or a product function. And so at that point, they're sponsoring a, can you build me this new pioneering thing, please, that delivers this outcome for our customers, for our business. And then they will bring engineering to the commercial negotiations and marketing to the commercial negotiations. And often we create that alignment before we engage procurement. But at some point in every blue chip, procurement and internal legal or the, the enterprise's legal will get involved. And that's where, you know, rubber hits the road and we're in through procurement negotiations. So let's just touch on that. So when do you bring, do you proactively bring procurement to the table on the negotiations as in, you know, it's going to happen. So you try and engage them early on, or do you bluntly leave them alone until you've got the things shaped with your big sponsor and then accept that they're going to negotiate with you? Which way around, John? We tend not to proactively engage, but we will be speaking to our sponsor around their understanding of the internal processes. So if our sponsor is relatively new to the the organization, then generally both sides, us and them, know we need to go on a journey to how do we become a preferred supplier, how are we going to get a master services agreement in place? And so we'll go on that's a kind of co-learning journey. If our sponsor has been at an organization for some time and understands that process, we'll be having the proactive conversation with them about how we might bring them in and when's the most appropriate time. Okay. And what happens, so yeah, without naming any of the names of the huge kind of technology-led consulting type organizations, global, why wouldn't those big enterprises go, oh, we'll get in X. They've got 100,000 people worldwide. You know, it, it won't go wrong. It's the old no one gets fired for buying for buying <laughs> IBM thing. How do you get in through the door? Yeah. So it's very familiar that there will be tier one suppliers who are supplying generally vast quantities of technical resource generally. And they will be under very large scale framework agreements. They'll be sitting either as preferred suppliers or, um, you know, core single outsource kind of BPO suppliers as well. Um, our sponsor will generally have a requirement to use a niche or boutique for a specific reason. And in our reason, it tends to be we're pioneering with either next generation technologies or with a new approach to product and product mindset, customer-centric, user experience design, baked into a cross-functional team. So they tend to be, the enterprise is organized in a certain way. The tier one suppliers are supplying to that organizational framework. We're tending to break that. So we're a small team, generally six to 12 people, maybe um, cross-functional capability, driving to a mission type outcome. And our sponsor recognizes that that's the way they want it to be delivered. And that's not available through those tier one suppliers. So they have enough of a remit to kind of create the space for its 
So fascinating. So, <laughs> so a couple of things. Having been on in a big six organization, which was very successful, I learned huge amounts um, uh, back then, back in KPMG. Um, but how do you stop the meeting your lunch, John? During the negotiations, you know, that often there's a quiet conversation going on between those huge global firms with procurement especially going, you don't need to go to the another, another provider. We can sort that out for you. We'll wrap it into our main uh, MSA. H- how do you stop that happening? So, I mean, it's a great question. It's a question I li- live by every day. Um, th- there's two answers to it, really. One is there is an element of co-opetition. So there are instances we are pretty close to more than a handful of large suppliers who know what their strengths are and recognize that the things that Red Badger bring can be of huge value. So we can help pioneer new approaches that they might subsequently benefit from and they know the enterprise wants to bring in. So we'll alter ways of working, for instance, without doing that top down through a huge transformation program. We can do that bottom up with a you know exemplar pioneering team, but we've not got the scale to make that 10 teams or 100 squads. Whereas the tier one supplier does. So they'll recognize there's that value. Um, the other, which is much more transactional, is yes, there is category leads in procurement that will be saying this is a premium priced and you don't need to because our tier one suppliers are already negotiated a rate card that's half the price. Correct. And exactly. That, that happens in pretty much every negotiation I'm involved in. And in those instances... And that's the heart of it, John. So let, let's delve into that kind of rabbit warren. Uh, yeah. So, so what's how does that there? work? What tends to happen is a sponsor has enough credibility, remit, and appetite to create the space to bring someone like us in. Right. So they will really want it. And it's it's like that, pro. you see this in construction often, the idea of buying on price alone. So there's always a sense of, let's go to an RFP, through the RFP process, we'll compare, we'll scorecard, and we'll have prices at 60%, 70% of the scoring metric. We won't compete in that environment. That is not the project that we would ever win because we're a premium priced um, really concentrated, we skew senior, so we have a unique proposition. Which is the Blair Ends thing. The Blair Ends thing. Of the we, Blair Ends. Win without pitching. You know, we're not going to go down the RFP route because we're going to get commoditized. Correct. And if if you are genuinely, if the enterprise is genuinely looking for a commodity, then they should buy that off the shelf. That's what procurement's there for, right? It's built scale. It understands how to purchase. So that's, but that's not the thing that we get brought into. And so our job becomes one, our the business development part of the commercial role is about qualifying. Yes. It's about finding opportunities. We call it, we, our internal language is they're badger shaped. Is this project badger shaped? And what that means is, is it pioneering? Is it complex? Does it have, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of customers or humans interacting with it? 
is the stakeholder environment complex? Is there alignment issues? That's a badger-shaped opportunity. That's where we thrive. And so we'll look for sponsorship for those kind of environments. So way before, way before you get to a negotiation around your commercials, rightly, you're saying, pick your niche, make it narrow and deep, high-level sponsorship, mission critical, something has to happen that's different. And that allows you to truly differentiate who you are, which gets you away from a commodity price negotiation. That's entirely our world, is well described. And we we have this to the point where our, our position, we use playbooks internally, our positioning playbook, which describes all of that, is a 12-page document with real detail about the specifics of the types of projects that we are positioned to best deliver. So we understand where our value is um, highest. And so they're the things we look for. And and, and again, anyone that's listening, um, just kind of like the the lesson learned here that many of you all know that are listening is, if you're going to be a niche provider, which I, I personally believe you know, the, the buying community now, that complex stakeholder group, is looking for niche providers with true expertise. You have to be able to differentiate yourself, be a true niche provider, demonstrate your credentials, you know, look at the roadmap between what you're going to charge versus the value you're going to create and carve yourself out that niche. And not try and not try and do the design, build, and operate at scale and scale out. Pick the bits that you're brilliant at that you can maintain your premium for. Pick those bits. The, the other part to that is the um, crossing the chasm piece ah. around solving the client's problem in a way where we play nicely with other vendors. You know, we're not we're not trying to eat other people's lunch. We know our niche, but we're also very friendly, very happy to engage with whoever else is either engaged or likely to be engaged, including often technology has multiple vendors in a stack plus open source, plus a whole range of complex interactions. So you always sit in the heart of an ecosystem. And so you need to be friendly with that ecosystem and work well with them. Now. A topic that you've kind of like triggered in my mind, which we talked about before in the kind of the pre-session, um, the pricing models. So as a buyer, I can vouch for agile contracts are a nightmare for me because you want to take me on this kind of voyage of discovery. It feels like I've no way of capping the damn thing. It feels like I'm being led by the supplier and I don't like that. I want to be in control and have strong governance. Just talk, John, about the commercial model options that you typically negotiate around and what happens in Agile. How is Agile negotiated on those kinds of deals, if that's where you kind of end up? It's a very hard um, balance to be struck. So it utterly depends on the nature of the project, on what the client is looking to buy as an outcome. So what will tend to happen is if a project is seen as an engineering delivery one, build me something, then the natural procurement behaviors are, well, let's scope what that thing is, define it clearly, and fix a price for delivering it, and often a date as well, and a level of quality. And in IT procurement terms, it's a well-understood problem around fixing price, particularly 
but waterfall. So waterfall and output. I'm buying an output and it's waterfall driven. Yep, and the deliverables need to be well understood and anything yep. that changes in those deliverables is managed under Variations. change control. And yep. we're, we're fully familiar with that model. Now, going back to that, what's our niche? Our niche tends to be complex and full of uncertainty. And the uncertainty arises in multiple dimensions. So one is the technical landscape. So what's required technically is uncertain on day one. Also, it's uncertain what the scope is. So we tend to pioneer products where the customer research has not been done. And we would, in agile terms, we want to get production grade product in the hands of customers as early as possible so that the customer interaction with that product tells you what you should build next. Where does the value flow in this product? So you can't write scope on day one and expect it to be delivered on day 100 because it's an unknown. So as long as that understanding is in place, either with the sponsor, well, it's always in place with the sponsor, but it needs to be in place then with the contracting entity, so procurement, legal, etc. We yeah. will end up in a agile, what will tend to happen is that agile wording exists in the contract. And so that describes how scope will emerge and that the client always holds the reins on what that scope is and how it prioritizes. And we will tend to sell resource. So it becomes time and materials against a floating scope, or we can time box resource, so a monthly run rate. And so they they tend to be the core models. What ends up often in discussion early, but never crosses the line commercially, is other (laughs) value-based pricing. So in agile terms, there are many ways to do value-based, but mostly it's around baselining where you are today and creating some kind of shared risk-reward on an outcome in the point in the future. But the getting to what the baseline is today becomes very hard to contract to, and describing the outcomes in such a way that isn't just a JV becomes very difficult contractually. You've also got this problem, John, of you know on that that shared on that value based pricing model, um, you've got an uncapped budget for the buyer because if you knock it out of the park and the baseline has been set appropriately and you deliver a hundred million of additional revenue, they could end up on the wrong side of quite a big check. Yeah, I mean, I've lived my life in the selling side, and I know you've got much experience on the procuring side as a buyer. So I, it's somewhat of a dark art to me. But what I tend to see is there's a point in time where that risk becomes unacceptable, and it's generally procurement or finance that say, we're not prepared to sign up to that. So in all of my sponsor-led business conversation, yes, that seems like a valid option to contract to, but it doesn't survive contact with the finance or the procurement. But what's interesting, John, is I think as a negotiation strategy is you're laying out options. There are different ways we can do this. Um, You're talking about value-based pricing as one of the options, uh, whatever that model looks like. And then what happens naturally in big complex enterprises, when the risk profile is understood and the implication of certain scenarios are understood, it moves the all the stakeholders back to a model of saying, actually, this is brand new to the business. It could be brand new to the industry. The industry's not tried this before. 
So there's no precedent been set. We're going to go on a journey. And then procurement's job is to, in my view, is ensure that the journey is well managed, that there are stepping off points so that it doesn't get out of control, and that it's clear at the at the kind of the sprint intervals, we know what we've got and we know where we're going next. I think that's exactly where we end up every time, is that you end up with a governance framework for the work and it's time and materials contracted such that you are aligning incentives. So we have to be performing such that the client continues to pay us and T&M gives them that, that flexibility to, to terminate. Um, and the scope, if you're running agile sprints, which pretty much every project I've done for the last 20 years has been in this model, then that scope change, you have to bake that flexibility in. But it does mean every two weeks you get to review. Right. You know, and the client has hands on the reins as much as we do. So, John, this is I, I love these conversations. It's brilliant. And we've had many of these over a, over a coffee or over a drink. We have. Um, one more thing, and then I'd like just, just to summarize it. So one more thing that's on my mind and that we have discussed before, how do you negotiate termination for convenience and IP rights in those contracts? Yeah, they are pretty common areas of commercial negotiation. So whether we're doing a master services agreement as the first time in or we're on the seventh statement work for a project, um, these, these will arise. So IP rights first, relatively straightforward in our world. So we're generally creating pioneering new technology and approaches for the client. So we will vest all IP rights in the client. For anything new developed for them, they will get that. Interestingly, commercially, it's on payment of the invoice. So it's important to maintain the leverage that IP vests at that point. In technology terms, of course, much technology is built on the shoulders of prior technology and open source being the classic example of that being well managed. So we, in the process of developing, we will both use generic IP that exists already and we will create generic IP. So we can make that distinction commercially, where generic IP that's used or developed has to be commercially baked into the legal agreement. But it's relatively straightforward in our world. So how do you stop, John, the, the age-old problem of, um, if the client owns the IP, then how do you stop the problem of, when you do your next project with a new client, is there a danger of breaching the IP clause because you're doing something very different but using some of the same methods or approaches, or how does that work? Because it's complex. How does that work? It is. There's a there's a relatively straightforward generic description where IP that has the opportunity to be reused without um, having any impact on the proprietary IP, then you can either have rights in perpetuity and they're royalty free in any region, and you can define that in contractual terms. And I think for the most part, enterprises understand this. And what we find in our clients is they've matured their use of open source in particular. And so they will have software sign-off processes that we will tend to mirror in contract and in practice. Fine. Okay. So, so again, it's understanding what the issues are being commercially practical about it uh, and making sure that neither party has got their hands tied. Yeah, pretty much. So it, it generally is 
relatively straightforward. It's always raised and then it's a shared understanding gets reached and then commercially signed to. I think in terms of termination for convenience, this is the fascinating piece for the kind of work we do. Because what will tend to happen in the first ever project with a new client, we will negotiate an MSA and a statement of work for that project. It may just be a discovery or an assessment piece before we're into a build piece. But at some point, there is a build type contract. It generally is time and materials. And at that point, we're then engaging with procurement and immediately we're into a, can we discount? Your rate card seems <laughs> too high, and we need an answer to. Uh, yeah, according to down. my PSL and my other suppliers, you're way above the rate card. <laughs> yeah. So, as soon as we're in that conversation, I think of it as there are three options available to the buyer. So, option one is time and materials. We get there really quickly. It's the pragmatic, easy answer. There's no um, commitment to spend beyond either the statement of work term or the termination for convenience term. And so in that instance, that's at our rate card. So if a sponsor wants to prove the red badger value, they will just sign to a very flexible ad hoc, but that's at full retail rate card. The second option is where there is an intent to spend more so they can already foresee that they may want to extend the, the existing project or find other work, but they can't commit that work on day one. But the intent is there. And so discounts are applicable, and how we'll generally do them is volume tiers. So if they spend a certain amount, that will trigger a discount level for the next spend. We tend not to retro-apply. Once they've reached the level, it's not available today. This discount is for commitment. And that we're a consultancy, which means we're a utilization-driven business. We're incredibly sensitive to the amount of utilization that our build consultants drive. So in that instance, the piece that is most valuable to us commercially is a commitment. So a commercial commitment to spend in future allows us to manage our bench level, our rotations in and out of projects and our resource blend such that we have advantage, which we are willing to pass on in terms of discount. But it does mean you end up a bit like a mobile phone contract to maximize discount available, then it has to be a committed spend. And in that instance, it's a, here's a period of time and a spend, and it's fundamentally a use it or lose it. There is no termination for convenience without buying the full contract out. And so that's that tends to, we do do those kind of deals, but they tend to come with clients that we've worked with for some time who are very committed and understand that we are a key part of their mix and their planning and their business cases in place. And there's a long-term roadmap that they're committing to yeah. on their side that you're the partner for. Yeah, and we'll re remain flexible in those instances. We generally remain flexible that we will deploy the resources on anything that, again, going back to that badger-shaped idea, as long as it fits the thing we do best and offer the best value in, we will be flexible about how the resources get deployed so that we still give them the rights to kind of move us around to the next pioneering project. Perfect. Um, John? It's been amazing. It always is. It's always a great chat that we have. Uh, so thank you ever so much. It's been brilliant. And um, some summary. Just if you were talking to you know, someone like yourself maybe 10 years ago, 
They've been selling for a while. They're moving much more into enterprise. Um, what advice would you give them about how to approach these kinds of negotiations? What are the kind of couple of things that you'd say are key? Yeah, it's a great question for reflecting. I think one of the things I've definitely learned that takes time to really appreciate is that often what is said is not what is true. And so it takes time to really get to grips with what's the truth of this situation, circumstance, buyer motivation. So sometimes it is true that your sponsor can access budget and can sign commercially. Sometimes they will tell you that's true and it isn't true. There is some as yet unknown barrier to that occurring. So recognizing that as you go through is pretty powerful. It's a superpower to recognize that there will be a whole suite of things that you can't predict day one and your job is to uncover them. So continue to find what's the truth behind the thing that's being said. So I think that's a, a key one. And I, I think along similar lines, then, it is about understanding the motives on the other side. So I've always, going back many years, I've always felt in a selling cycle, particularly complex sales, there's a point in time when you first engage, it's like you're sitting either side across from each other at a table. And we're kind of saying, this is what we do. What do you need? And they're saying, we need this. Can you do it? At some point in every sale I've ever been involved in, that dynamic shifts to you're sitting on the same side of the table, looking at something in front of you and trying to solve it together. And that's true whether it's the technology it's true whether it's the scope, and it's true whether it's the commercial agreement. The moment you get to that point, when you're both saying, we want to get this thing done, we know approximate budget of X, we know the approximate scope, now let's work out how we commercially agree it, and you're doing that in partnership with a client, that's the piece that gives you the greatest confidence that you'll get there. Brilliant, John. So that... in. <laughs> My summary piece for that, you've just described what we call distributive versus integrative negotiations. A distributive negotiation is demand-based, lots of to and throw, relatively combative. An integrative negotiation, problem-solving, relationship is important, understanding what the options are, coming to a mutual agreement around interests the motivations, not demands. I mean, that's exactly right. And the whole, my entire selling career has been in that latter space. It's always selling something that is non-commodity. And if the, as soon as it's non-commodity, you can't do it any other way. You have to reach shared understanding. And that takes all the things you just described. John, brilliant. Where can people find out more about you and Badgers? We are at Red Well, any Red Badger is such a great name for finding us. But if you if you have a look for Red Badger, you'll find us. Um, I think I've described the kind of things we do. If you're a big global org with a blue chip client base and need to get things done, we can do that. We can build digital products in those environments in 100 days. There's tons of insight on our website. Please head there. John, brilliant. Thanks ever so much for being a guest. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Mike. 
Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.